0: Welcome to Democracy Now and Then, this is your host Finney, and today we are going to be talking about art, activism, libraries, democracy, and more. The opinions of the guests in this podcast may not be your own, but the best part of a democracy is that we can share our own opinions freely without judgment, so that we can learn from each other. Our first guest is Dan V. He's a professor of art at the University of the District of Columbia in Washington, D.C., and an adjunct professor of art at Montgomery College in Maryland. Dan's interest in ancient Greece began as an extension of his love of art, and I quote, The gracefulness and balance of Greek statuary is evidence of a culture that values these ideas. Dan has also traveled to Greece and Athens many times. Let's get started.
1: Dan, where does your knowledge of Athenian democracy come from? Through research that was initially started through my fascination with Greek art, Um, I've traveled to uh, Greece several times. I've read a lot of Greek literature and have learned about uh, democracy over the years through a good deal of reading. Cool.
0: Okay, second question. What is democracy?
1: Democracy is the idea that instead of people being lorded over by a king or or a single ruler, that um, individuals would have a say-so in determining their destiny, primarily through casting votes. There's different types of uh, democracy. What we have here in the United States is representative democracy. So even though we cast our votes, we're casting our votes for leaders who then go to make the decisions. Whereas in Athens, Athenian democracy was a bit more, I probably more, technically more difficult to manage, which was that actually everybody's vote actually determined the actual law.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was called a direct democracy.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Okay, third question. Who could vote in an Athenian democracy? <laughs>
1: Um, essentially, it was the people that came from, um, from the older families. Um, in, um, in later Roman culture, they referred to two different categories of people, the patricians and the plebeians. Um, so the idea being that the plebeians were common people and the patricians were essentially the landowners. And that's, it's in a way very similar to the way that the people in Athens, uh, thought about things because, you know, even though we, we, we thank the Greeks, the ancient Athenians, for the development of democracy, it's true that back in their day that women had no rights and women were not voting. And they also even had slaves. So, you know, we have a tendency to think of the idea of democracy as being everybody's free. Everybody has to say so. But it was definitely very limited in Athenian democracy to men, basically, and to landed men. Right.
0: Okay, Dan, here's our fourth question. Why didn't they allow everyone to vote in an Athenian democracy?
1: Well, I think that the idea goes to the, um, the idea of having um, an educated uh, electorate, you know, which is interesting because we think about that now, even in the United States, the idea that everybody has the right to vote, but oftentimes people are just kind of going out and just voting for their feelings or not really being educated on the issues, but just being swayed by the media and things like that. So I think that this was a big part of Athenian democracy is that they didn't want you yeah. to um, just be a dabbler in civics. You know, they wanted you to be somebody who was really, really aware, paying attention, that you knew what the issues were. So, um, so that was the reason why, you know, the women who were largely not really a major part of, um, <laughs> it's hard to say this, but hard to think part of society. I mean, men, men were going out and were learning about politics and being educated whereas women were more or less uneducated and staying at home and making babies and raising families so um, so that's the reason why women were not really included and slaves were not included because they were generally people that had been uh, sort of absorbed by the athenians by uh, um, you know by, by conquering other other tribes right so you know they they you, know, you wouldn't want somebody that <laughs> that was essentially opposing your very viewpoint to suddenly be voting for uh, for uh, the things that your, your civilization or your government stood for. So, I, so again, I guess the simplest way of, of, of just sort of wrapping that up is they wanted people to be educated and aware. And back then they basically thought that meant that you were a man. Right.
0: <laughs> okay, Dan, here's our fifth question. Are there times in this Athenian democracy where it did not work?
1: actually yes the, the thing is is that there there were still problems with the idea of even having an, an educated electorate people were still opinionated and a prime example and one of the most notorious examples was when socrates was sentenced to death now socrates was just a teacher uh, but he was he was sort of opening the minds of young people and the elders in athens mm-hmm. were like you know we can't have this because this guy is corrupting our youth. So they basically sentenced him to death for being, <laughs> for basically being an inquisitive teacher and opening the minds of his students. And so the thing about it is, is that that's a, a very, uh, a very famous example where fundamentally somebody that wasn't really guilty of something worthy of death was actually sentenced to death. So, so you know, even with an educated uh, electorate, you're still going to have people injecting opinions and. And, and, you know, popular opinion, you know, creating these, these results, these judgments.
0: Right, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Okay, thank you, Dan, for your time. One last bonus question. What part, uh, part or parts of Athenian democracy do you find interesting or fascinating?
1: One of the things that I, I, I actually really love this idea is that they had the um, ability with casting their ballots, casting their votes, to simply banish someone from society for several years, which I really love the idea of that, that it's like it doesn't matter if it was a common citizen or just a rabble-rouser or some criminal or even a politician, that they would get together and they would say, okay, now we're going to vote on who we're going to banish, who we're going to make leave our society, which I think is a pretty incredible thing. It's kind of in a way like voting someone off the island, if you will. You know, the yeah. idea of who, who do we want to get rid of? And I, I, I know that that might sound harsh to today's society, but I kind of like the idea that if we determined that somebody was just doing a really bad job at whatever they were supposed to be doing and they just needed to go, that we could just get together and say, you know, go away, come back in seven years when you've worked it out. Right. Um,
0: but also, I don't think that always works because when they banished Pericles um they they had to bring him back because he was such a good general so it doesn't always
1: work well well, absolutely i mean what i'm saying is i think that the concept of it is 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 maybe better than the historical implementation and i think that actually that's something you could say of which is true of all democracy like like i've often said this about america and american democracy i don't really love america for what it is now I love it for its possibility, right, for what right. what potentially we could do. But we're still in the process of working it out. But that's one of the beauties of democracy is that we're, we're able to change laws as we're figuring out what works and what doesn't work.
0: We're able to have a say. Um, thanks again for Daniel Veen. Um, thank you for your time, Dan. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Our next guest is Dred Scott. He's a revolutionary artist, a visual artist, and a professional troublemaker. He works in a lot of different media. Some of it is performance, video photography, sculpture, and printmaking. But it's all engaged in asking an audience to confront and reassess a lot of the cohering ideas of American society and often to imagine how the world can be radically different and far better. He shows his art from anywhere, to major museums, to street corners. He is also going to have a piece in the New York Historical Society. Let's get started. What are some problems with democracy today?
2: Um, the biggest problem with democracy today is how people understand it, actually. I think people think of democracy either largely as like a lot of people get to vote and then a decision is made, um, or a system, you know, that is sort of the foundation of American society, but they don't really look at sort of that it is a form of rule. And I think to talk about democracy without recognizing the, 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 the economic foundation and societies that the democracy sits on top of and specifically in class society to talk about democracy without talking about the class that it serves is sort of it's it creates an illusion that that we're all equal and i mean sort of you know people somewhat jokingly said you know democracy is two wolves and a sheep getting together to talk about what's for lunch and so i think that that you know in this society you know america in particular you know they it's democracy was founded upon slavery I mean, the U.S. Constitution was written by enslavers and friends of enslavers to define the legal and political framework of a society whose economic foundation was enslavement. America is founded on slavery and genocide. As you pointed out earlier, only 6% of the people could vote, but it was not even that it was founded on stolen land and that people were brought from another continent to actually work that land. That's, That's really important to understand. The people who conceived of American democracy Their conception of freedom was predicated on owning human beings. That's what freedom meant for them. Mm. It was not inconsistent with democracy for them. George Washington and, and Jefferson all very much believed in the democracy they were talking about. But it actually, their conception of it was we're going to own people and have them work for us. And those people are not going to have any rights whatsoever. And the Dred Scott decision of 1857, where an enslaved man, Dred Scott, um, was in a territory that had abolished slavery, so he sued for his freedom, and it went to um, the Supreme Court. And in the ruling in 1857, the Supreme Court Chief Justice wrote, amongst other things, that there are no rights that a black person has that a white man is bound to respect, and rooted his ruling deeply in the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and U.S. law and British law and custom up until that point. And in doing that, he went deeply into the fact that the founding fathers never conceived of Africans and descendants of Africans as human beings or people that that were, you know, going to participate in the democracy. Um, and in part, he actually then went to the logical thing: is that look, they Washington people love their families. They would not allow if black, if black people were citizens, they would be able, they would own, they'd be allowed to own guns and who who would they turn those guns on so it was very clear and it's like while i don't agree with the philosophical viewpoint of chief justice tanney who wrote that which is i mean is an argument steeped in white supremacy the logic is actually very clear about how they understood what democracy was and that's what this country is and people keep trying to distort what the history of this country is to say democracy is actually better than it is. Democracy in this country has been part of this country, which has been a nightmare for humanity. I mean, again, a country founded on slavery and genocide and today based on exploitation and oppression that has white supremacy baked into its very foundation and fabric. And then people say, well, look, if we only got back to what the founding fathers said, well, the founding fathers were enslavers. OK, so when is this period where, where democracy was supposedly working? Was it when they dropped bombs on the people of, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, incinerating civilian populations? Was it when they, they you know carried out cal- had the cavalry, of the native the indigenous population? Was that when democracy was good? Was it during the Jim Crow era where, where 6,600 black people were lynched in racial violence terror? Was that when it was good? When is this period where democracy was something that that we should look to and said this was a good time for a system that could be perfected.
0: Okay, here's my next question: Do you see yourself as an activist, and if so, how?
2: Um, y- y- yes and no. I mean, it, it, I I mean, most certainly through many, in fact, most periods of my life, it, it would have been a simple yes answer. Um, you know, activists often do things like organize demonstrations or collect funds and, 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 you know, prepare people to sort of challenge the status quo through political protest or through op-eds and try and get social justice, uh, you know, reforms enacted. And you know, I've done a lot of that. Most of my activism was as a revolutionary, trying to help people sort of, you know, be part of and expand a, a movement for revolution in the United States. Um, And that's still true, but much of how I carry out my political activism now is more through my art, and I'm predominantly an artist. I mean, it's not that I don't sometimes still go to demonstrations. It's not that I don't contribute funding to activist causes and and help organize in some ways, but increasingly, as I've both gotten older and more, as my art has gained a more national and consistent influence, um, I've shifted towards addressing... Um, the questions I want to address more directly just with the art and not as much with the activism, but um, I I think that's a a bit of a matter of degrees. It's not that I've given up my activist hat or aspirations. It's just that sort of on a day in and day out basis, I spend less time, you know, sort of getting on the phone and calling people and asking them to come sign a petition or, or come to a demonstration than I than I did or, or bailing friends out of jail for, for being part of a demonstration that I did you know 10 or 15 years ago but but um you know I I, I still am an activist it's just not um, in the same way as, as when I was younger and I still very 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 much uphold the spirit of activism and people doing that as important as I think the art that I am making is I, I don't think that it's an either or proposition I don't think social change happens. Either just as activists or just as artists, um, and I and you know there are a lot of people that are you know my colleagues, friends, comrades, that are doing a lot of work that is not you know that doesn't get them on, on network news or get articles written about them. They don't get Guggenheim grants, but that that work in you know the housing projects, the ghettos, and barrios or on the streets around the country is really essential, vital work for, for changing the world.
0: Thank you dread that was great um here's um the next question how can a middle how can middle school kids today get involved in activism
2: um well the same way they have for decades and generations i mean you know it's like it's you know people with gray hair like mine aren't the in the main the people who change the world we're the people who keep the world the, the damn same way it is it's people that are younger i mean you know the civil rights movement that a lot of people look to as being important for social change, those were people in middle and high school and sometimes college. I mean, you know, at the point when, say, Martin Luther King was killed, he was 33. He'd been a long time activist at that point. Fred Hampton was killed when he was 21 years old, leader, the Black Panther leader, Illinois chair, chairman of the Black Panther Party was killed when he was 21. It is young people who change the world. And, and um, you know, because I'm old, I don't exactly know how young people can do that today. I do know that Greta Thunberg, you know, 17-year-old, got the entire world to rethink what, what, um, you know, how, how to address the, the question of climate change and, and, and really got people broadly to understand that there is a absolute crisis in, in, in and climate emergency and that people, including kids, needed to act and sort of kicked off Extinction Rebellion, which is really great. But I think that, you know, kids have found ways to be active and, and will continue to do so, and they don't completely need sort of my either permission or sanction, and I don't exactly know how, how in a particular case, you as an individual or, or your friends can be active. I think the main thing is find the things that you're passionate about and look at the world, and, and frankly, don't listen to all the things that adults tell you you can't do. I mean, if you listen to that, you'll limit yourself on what you can do. And you figure out, well, what do you think needs to be changed? What would be a more just world? And get together with some friends and go basically demand that the world bend to your will. Um, and and I, I think that, you know, I would encourage you and others to study what people have, you know, um, you know, both the tactic and strategies and political theory of people who've come before. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, but I think, you know, as somebody who, you know, I'm a communist, and I've, I've read a lot of, you know, Marx and Lenin and Mao and, and Baba Bakian and 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 other communist theoreticians, and one of the things that Mao actually emphasized, and, and I'm sure that some of your friends, you're like, her heads are exploding, oh my God, he thinks Mao is good, um, and if you don't know who Mao is, I'm sure if you talk to a few people, they'll tell you I'm crazy, and you shouldn't listen to a single thing I say, because I said that, but... Um, You know, uh, he says, you know, first people were Bell, and then they—actually, it was Lennon. He said, first people were Bell, and then they actually looked for theory. And I think that's really important. I mean, it's like you don't need to know everything. You don't have to justify everything. But it's very easy to say, well, say, the police killing black people is wrong. I want to do something about that for, you know— adults telling me that we have to have lots and lots and lots of fossil fuels and we just have to tolerate the planet getting warmer because it would be really economically challenging to do anything other than that tell them well no they're wrong yes it would be hugely disruptive to to get off the world's current addiction or capitalism's addiction to oil it will be very disruptive but that the, the alternative is actually far worse and you know it's it's easy for you with Frankly, some naivete. There's some things you don't know because you're young. You, but that also means you don't know what you can't do. And so, just go out and do it. Um, you know, I, I think that if there's any positive change is going to happen, it's because of you know young people who have the daring and audacity to go change the world. And then, as you do that, talking with your friends and 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 looking at what's the best of what's come before and figuring out what what actually works. Because frankly, you know, asking a 56 year old how to become an activist is like, well, if I had done what I wanted to and, and, and everything, if I knew if I knew enough, we wouldn't be having this conversation in a context where, you know, people are having to say that Black Lives Matter, where we're really worried about the, the global temperature rising 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius, where, you know, Me Too is having to be there and where the, the you know, right now we're, we're looking at say, People in India dying because they can't have oxygen. We're looking at people in Palestine dying because Israel is a settler colonial oppressive state. We're looking at people in Colombia protesting and being murdered and all because of imperialism in a certain sense. It all is all tied to that. If I and my generation had done what we should have done, and we and it wasn't completely for lack of trying, and but if we had been successful, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We'd be having a different conversation. And so, you know, take Take what's good from from you know us gray gray haired people, but uh, you know Abby Hoffman, uh, you know who's now dead. He's an activist that was a yippie. I mean, he said, and many people said, don't trust anybody over thirty. There, you know, there's some things that's a little bit mechanical about that, but there's some truth to that. Go out and make your own way.
0: Wow, thank you. Um, is there anything else you would like to add?
2: Um. I mean, I guess that the main thing, I guess there are two things. One, I think it's really great that middle schoolers are thinking about questions like this, and I really encourage you to do that. I also think that um, it's important to sort of be continue to be audacious when you're young and you know, you can get away a lot more, get away with a lot more when you're young than when you're old, um, which gets back to, you know, how do young people connect up with a movement that, um, you know, you, you can, you know, maybe not when you're in middle school, but when you're near the end of high school, you could say, well, I'm going to go to some other country and try and do something there or some other part of the U.S. I mean, you, it would be easy for somebody your age to go to, say, Standing Rock, and and live there for a month without being really disruptive. Older people, we have to have fun, we have to make money to pay mortgages and rent and to provide for children like you so that you can go out and do things like that. You can actually, you know, when you're 17, I'm not encouraging it, but you can get arrested for protesting and doing civil disobedience and not have it impact you the same way as when you're say 32 or something like that. Um, And you, you know, can, can dream. You can connect up with other friends who haven't got so stayed in your thinking. And so you can, you know, this is a magical time and I would really encourage you to appreciate that, but also read a lot. I mean, I, you know, and, you know, find, find the most radical thinkers that you agree with and read them, listen to the most radical music you can, find the most radical movies that you can see them and talk about them with your friends, then have fun changing the world. Wow. Um, Thank you. I, I would I would point to two two other things. One, um, I mentioned Bob Avakian. He's a leader of the Revolutionary Communist Party. If you're thinking about democracy, there's a book that he wrote called Democracy, Can't We Do Better Than That, that is um, Hold on for just a second. I'm going to take this, but I'm going to come come right back to you. Hello?
0: We had to take a short break, but now we're back.
2: Yeah. So I'm saying Baba Bakian and Democracy, can't we do better than that? There's also a couple videos out if you go to revcom, revcom.us that you could see. And then there's a book by George Jackson I would recommend called Blood in My Eye. Um, George Jackson was a Black Panther, he was arrested and spent the last part of his adult life in prison, and he was ultimately killed while in prison, but he did a lot of writing about how how to get free, and he was really thinking about, I mean, not just his personal freedom, but he was thinking about how, how do you make revolution in a country like the U.S., um, and I, I think it's a book very much worth reading. So, cool.
0: Um, thank you, Dred, I know you're very busy. Um, Thank you for your time.
2: Sure. Well, you're welcome. It's good to talk to you, and, and I hope you, I wish you success in this assignment, and I wish you success in changing the world.
0: You too. Our next and final guest today is Kathy Creton. She is the director of the John Germain Memorial Library in Sag Harbor, New York. Kathy has worked in all kinds of libraries since 1974. She has worked in public libraries, school libraries, museum libraries, and even prison libraries. So you could say she has a lifelong professional commitment to libraries. And she says, her words, they are awesome. Let's get started. Here's our first question. How does a library compare to an Agora, the meeting place where ancient Athenians voted and debated? I think that's a great question, Fini, because in some sense, public
3: libraries now, in this era of the 21st century, we serve as the agoras for our community, we serve, um, especially pre-COVID, for a public meeting space where people could come in and gather and talk about shared concerns, but In fact, that's a newer sense of public libraries. They predate the Agora by thousands of years. Um, There uh, actually were a gathering place, not so much for people, but a gathering place for people's stories. So in some sense, the Agora is more transactional. People come and they leave, but there is no permanent record kept in an Agora. It's all about the experience rather than the history. I also um, think libraries are more democratic than the Agora was. Ancient Greek culture didn't allow women or serfs or uh, marginalized people, travelers, to take place in the Agora. So in that sense, although we think of it as this really great public democratic space, it It wasn't, and libraries I like to think
0: are. Thank you, Kathy. Here's our next question. How does a library serve a role in a democracy? That's another great question, Finney, and my answer might
3: um, seem a little different to you. I might actually end up answering two and three kind of together, but a democracy with sort of a capital D meaning is a form of government at its most basic. It's a form of government that is um, where decisions are made by the people in a perfect world. So I think libraries serve a capital D democracy by providing information. And my belief is that with enough information, people will make good decisions. So a community with a library in it provides that democratic voice with the resources to be strong um, to protect dialogue to protect different viewpoints and informations. So, but I, I think that, uh, well, I guess that's my answer to that one.
0: Thanks. Thank we you. To. Is there any way that a library can interfere in a negative way with a democracy? I don't know
3: about negative, but there's certainly ways that libraries can interfere with democracies, because although I believe we support a democratic culture, we, we embody democratic principles rather than being governed as a democracy if that makes any sense. So we don't necessarily allow the voices of our community to make our decisions for us. But all of the voices of a community in a good public library are represented by the books on our shelves and by the people we select to provide programming for us. So at John Germain, we have books that cover a a lot of diversity of opinions. Um, We have uh, conservative, uh books on the shelves we have very liberal books on the shelves our programming last year pre-pandemic included uh a drag queen story time where a local member of the community who grew up here um and is a, a drag queen came in and did uh story time for little children so if we that to me feels democratic with a lowercase d Finney, but if we would've listened to the voices of the community, they might've shut that program down. I had many, many, many hostile phone calls and emails about that drag queen story time. So we, in some sense, our decisions were made independent of the voices of our community because we believed they met our mission. They met our mission to tell everybody's story. So I think that we don't always, um, we interfere with democracy in a way because we don't always let people take books off our shelves. We don't always let people take programming out of what we're doing. So it's, um, I I see a real difference in um, my answers to you based on whether or not you mean big D democracy, this is the government or little d democratic, which is making room for a multitude of voices and holding them all in trust. That's what a good public library does. There's a whole other layer to it though, that libraries are, are not always their best selves. Um, In the Jim Crow era, public libraries were more like the Agora. They were segregated and not everybody in the communities could use the public libraries. I like to think we've come a long way. I suspect we have really, really a long way to go. Um, There are more and more threats against public libraries, more and more challenges to the materials on our shelves. Um, more and more incidences of people coming in and, and threatening libraries for the, the important work that they're doing.
0: Wow, thank you. Is there anything else you would like to add? Okay.
3: Thank I, you. I think I want to just add one thing for the people who'll be listening to this is that despite the challenges of this profession, it is the most amazing job in the world. I really believe in the power of public libraries to shape the communities um, that they serve for the good. I, I really, I guess I'm circling back and saying to you, we are still in my mind, the most democratic of institutions worldwide in a world that is seeing challenges to democracy.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to Democracy Now and Then. This is your host, Finney. And thank you especially to my guests in this podcast. Thank you, Dan Veen, Dred Scott, and Kathy Creedon. Also, a big thanks to my mom for helping me with all the tech stuff required for making this podcast. Thank you, everybody, and see you next time on Democracy Now and Then.